Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. This week, of course, the big events were the inauguration of Governor Gavin Newsom and the swearing-in of the new state superintendent of public instruction, Tony Thurmond. And Lewis, you went to Tony's swearing-in. Yes, John, it was at the McClatchy High School in Sacramento. Hundreds of people showed up. Several political luminaries were there to introduce Thurmond, who had served in the legislature for the last four years as an assemblyman. Among others making presentations were Representative Barbara Lee from Oakland, Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon, as well as the legendary farm worker organizer Dolores Huerta. You can check out the whole ceremony by clicking on the link which we provided on our website to this podcast. Here's an excerpt from Tony Thurman's remarks at the ceremony. There are thousands, some school districts in our state, and the superintendent of public instruction does not have direct responsibility over any of those districts. But yet, you will get the blame, or I will get the blame, for what goes wrong. I accept that. I accept those challenges. I accept the challenge you heard from Assemblymember David Chu. But here's my ask. Stand with me when we fight for our kids. It's easy to tear down and to destruct. I'll take your criticism. I'll take your best shot. But let's not criticize our kids. Let's talk about what we need to do to provide them with a great education. That starts with resources and training for our educators and support for our kids who've experienced trauma, our kids who are homeless, our kids who are in foster care, our kids who've been suspended. So let's keep them close and let's give them a great education. Will you stand with me on behalf of our kids? quite an impressive event. We're going to have to see what Tony Thurman makes of this position, which, uh, as many of you listening know, is more or less a bully pulpit. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of alliance he builds with the governor, because Governor Newsom has promised major reforms in education. It's a new governor and a new state superintendent, so it it will be interesting to see how the two work together, if they do. And interestingly, the major education, quote-unquote, education proposal that Governor Newsom made was around early education, putting forward a almost $2 billion more for early education programs, including starting at birth, basically. Yeah, it really is setting uh, the markers for the future. The other thing that happened this week was that the State Board of Education met and some members of the board attended their last meeting, including Mike Kirst, the president, who really has had quite an amazing run on the board, both during Jerry Brown's terms as governor in the 70s and early 80s, and then the last two terms as governor. It really has been a remarkable tenure. Kirst co-authored a paper 10 years ago that led to the local control funding formula. After Brown championed it, and it was approved in 2013, Kirst led its implementation as state board president. Along with providing extra money based on school districts' proportion of low-income students, English learners, and foster children, the law shifts control over decision-making from the state to local school boards. It also requires parents and students have a voice in creating goals for improvement and deciding how much money will be spent in many areas, including school climate and preparing students for college and careers. John, uh, you'll recall that while Mike Kirst was president of, of the state board, The board adopted new academic standards, the Common Core Standards in Math and English Language Arts, as well as the Next Generation Science Standards. 
It was both coincidental, the standards were being adopted nationally, and so California adopted them, but rarely have all the pieces systemically, and, and you know, as you look at policy, rarely have they all fit together as one. I caught up with Kirst over the winter holiday at his Stanford office where he reflected on the changes he helped create and all the work that still remains to be done. I asked him what pleases him most after eight years as president of the state board, considering all the changes that he helped create. As I go back to it, I think that we were able to think systemically in terms of all of the policies that you needed to address to improve the system. So the fact that we did work on 15 different sectors of state education policy and make it, you know, coherent and aligned, I think is the major part of it. Then the other thing is we promulgated high new standards for what students should know and be able to do in the four subject matters and really rethought those. And we're just beginning with next generation science and history civics. So I think the essence of what we did was have new standards and new curricular frameworks on what students should know and be able to do. And then we wrapped around it a systemic, multifaceted, aligned set of policies to implement that. So often, state policy has different directions within itself. The finance system is going one way and the assessment system is going the other way. Or the curriculum framework and the uh, testing aren't well aligned. Or there's no addressing of special education or career and technical education. So these pieces fit together. They are, were coherently designed. And then we have done well, I think, on communicating uh, that this is going to take a while. Patience, persistence humility and uncertainty about things like the LCAP, which had never been done before, proceed with humility, and then continuous improvement. And I think we've got really good curricular standards, which were at the core of what you align state policy around. You align the state policies to implement the standards. What makes you confident that, in fact, it will be implemented well, that this was the right system to implement? Every state I've looked at over time including prior reforms uh, going back even before George W. Bush. The policy system and the politics push accountability much faster than they push the capacity of educators to uh, implement the standards and the instructional improvement. What does that mean? Okay, it means that most of the groups that come before the state board or the legislature are pushing more and more accountability, more and more things in the dashboard, more intervention, more indicators, and that's the predominant thing. What you hear much less about and much less money spent on is, for example, how are we going to take all the mathematics teachers in elementary grades and enable them to teach common core mathematics? What worries you the most then, looking ahead? the capacity of the local educators to teach to the high standards that we have promulgated and the external support system for children and families to enable them to take advantage of the good teaching that we're increasingly providing. Looking ahead 10 years, can you do you foresee that the system you created will basically remain intact or will another wave of reform come and undo the work that you and others have done? I don't know the real threat that blows up the systemic aligned and coherent 
integrated approach we have is one-by-one one categoricals. In the last year or the year before Governor Schwarzenegger left the legislature and he passed 22 new categoricals. 22! And they refunded five categoricals which had lapsed. So they added 27 categoricals just before Governor Brown came in. And that seems to be the natural instinct of the legislature. And so only a governor can shut that down. And Brown showed very clearly that you can shut that down and you can hold the fort. Governor Brown said under local control that you wouldn't need to create categoricals. You would need to give billions of dollars for professional development or however you call it that districts could figure out what they need and they'll implement them. But do I hear you saying either there's not enough money for this kind of long-term training or districts that's not what they necessarily put their pot of money toward. They're not putting enough money towards that, but they're not getting much support from the policy system and the politics to do that. Every time we, you know, omit an indicator or we don't have graduation of chronic absence rates in the high school, there's a big brouhaha. But if half the math teachers, for example, are struggling, there's very little discussion of that at the local level. Well, you've created a system of support, and then there's a California Collaborative for Education Excellence, also that new agency that's in it, and also California Department of Education. There's three agencies. At this point, how comfortable or how optimistic are you that some of the capacity building is going to be occurring under this mixture and watch? I don't have confidence or no confidence. It's really just getting off the ground. I mean, what it is now is essentially notifying people about what their major problems are and then talking with them about how to solve them. There isn't a whole lot of, here's a way to bring things in and people you can go to that will solve how to teach elementary mathematics with your whole teaching force. So I think that's where we need to go. I would have hoped that the California Commission for Educational Excellence would have been farther along than it's been. To me, that's a major disappointment in terms of where they are in terms of, of helping out. What do you think it should be doing? Because it is a small yeah, agency. Yeah, I think it should be strategizing on the problem we've been talking about and offering more clear solutions about how to do it. What are the other drags on the system? So I did a report when I was co-director of PACE in 1989 called the conditions of children. And we looked at every aspect of children's lives in California, the music they listened to, their religion, but we also looked at all of the problems. What was the politically correct way to think about this in the past, recent past, has been that George W. Bush's view that any talk beyond education to solve these problems like the achievement gap is the soft bigotry of low expectations. Education alone could do it. The teachers needed to pull up their socks, work harder, and we'd pound them with accountability, shame them with no NCLB, and we'd get their nirvana. And then the charter movement talked about no excuses. You know, you can't talk about children outside of schooling. The new governor's view of children policy seems to be more expansive and it can't just be preschool. Things happen before preschool begins and, and preschool is not the sole magic bullet either. So I see the need towards a more integrative, holistic children's policy. So to me, the state government ought to create an entity which would oversee child and youth development. 
and it could even be in the governor's office. I thought when you mentioned drags on the system, you were also going to perhaps talk about teacher shortage, perhaps more funding for the system, and also the issue of teacher evaluations. Those all are part of teacher capacity building to me. Evaluation would clearly be helpful if designed right, so I agree that's an area that needs to be added. I think we're past the thing of test-driven teacher evaluation, and, and we can work on that in the future. So those are all, to me, parts of teacher capacity building. One thing I thought you might mention was special education. You purposely did not include special education in the funding formula. It was a disappointment. We couldn't devise anything that would have a winning coalition or that even made sense in some ways. Do we need more money for schools? Yeah, I think we need more money. There's no doubt about that. We're very high in child poverty and, you know, average or low depending on how you adjust for costs on spending. So I think that's there. You know, as a short-term palliative, I think we should reconsider the phase-out of uh, when you lose enrollment. When you lose a pupil or two from a classroom, you don't lay off the whole teacher. So the idea of marginal phase-out over a number of years, three I think we had, was a much better design. Now, I realize that's just a palliative, but I, that's one of the issues that I think we need to look at because I don't think these districts have enough time to adjust. And we're going to see more declining enrollment as the years roll by. But the argument that districts make is that the funding formula is fine, but the base isn't big enough, and therefore you get this tension where you sort of encroach on supplemental concentration money that's supposed to go for high-need students, and that's because the base isn't big enough. It's just a reality they face. Do you agree? Yeah, I think the base needs to grow more. I think it has been big enough as we leveled them up. I think the real issue is this declining enrollment. If you're growing, you're still not in bad shape. And a lot of places where the base is, is insufficient are in enrollment decline districts. I also think that we need to uh, look at the base given that we've reached the target under the local control funding formula, and now what should the future base be? I think that's a wide-open question and requires some kind of study. One of the bills that was introduced last year didn't go to the governor because I heard that the governor said, I don't want to impose a new base on a new governor. It's that it will be the next governor's job. One of, that bill will come back and it says, basically, we want to raise the base so that we can achieve at some point with unspecified date the level of the top 10 funded states per student in the nation. Is this something that we should shoot for, Mike, or is that not how you measure things? Well, it could be something we shoot for, but it's so ambitious that it won't drive policy very effectively. What we did was set up something for seven years, and we might not get into the top 10. But this was something doable and achievable, and people could hold us accountable and measure how we were doing. And if you set a target which is really very, very high and would take something huge like amounts of money, it, 50, it really becomes... $55 billion. $55 billion. How is that going to drive policy? We've talked a little bit about data. One of the findings in getting down the fact studies from Stanford and other researchers is that the system's been hampered by a lack of a really good quality statewide data system that 
goes down to early childhood and connects K-12 with higher ed, plus provides other data too. Do you agree and do you think that this should happen? I agree and I think it should happen. And I don't think doing it is going to be that difficult, except uh, particularly though the higher education level, you know, is really scattered across the three systems and the private systems of higher education as well. The issue that arises more than should we do it and can we do it is who should control this process? Who would be the arbiter of this? Where would you put the people that put it all together? How would you enforce it among the three higher education systems? Great questions, but other states have figured this out. Why hasn't California? Partly because many of the states don't have the post-hold siloed system of higher education we do. They have, you know, a very strong coordinating board or a coordinating board with a data system. We have a huge system out there called the Student Aid Commission that does Cal grants for post-secondary students. We've never been able to get all of that data. That's off there in space. So we build a system that's highly fragmented. And now you're saying to me, we have Humpty Dumpty on the floor here, and we should copy other states. Well, they didn't start with Humpty Dumpty in pieces. Do we uh, plan to hear from you again, Mike, on these <laughs> issues, or are you going to be uh, an angry commenter to uh, Ed Source, but not play a, uh, another role that's more visible? I don't know. I think there's an all-new regime coming in. I you know, have had positive and... Uh, forthright conversations with the new superintendent and the new governor, and I'm going to see where the landscape is and what the new ecology of education policy is for California education. So one of the things that I learned clearly, you know, in the first month of being state board president in 2011, eight years ago, was it's difficult for me to get in front of the governor. So I don't have that inhibition and I will get in front of this governor even though I wish him well and like him personally. Well, Mike, thank you very much. It's been an enjoyable talk and I appreciate your time. Look forward to talking in the future. That was Michael Kirst, the retiring president of the State Board of Education under Jerry Brown's four terms as governor. John, I hope Mike is going to stay involved in California education. In fact, I'm pretty sure he will. He has an intuitive sense. It just seems to be part of his DNA, an intuitive sense not only of the research around education but also the practical applications of that research. And California really has been the beneficiary of that on the state board, a pretty remarkable tenure that he's had there. And, uh, of course, his relationship with the governor made his input so much more impactful. Yeah, that was an important duo For sure, Lewis. And what impressed me about Mike was not only his ability to conceptualize sort of systemic changes, but also to recognize, because he's a good listener, that all that will depend on what happens in the classroom and what happens in districts. And so when he's talking about the need that he's most concerned about training for teachers, I mean, what happens at the classroom level will determine whether or not all these changes succeed. You know, you have to appreciate his understanding of that and and when he talks about patience and persistence, it's just not as a principle of action. It's, it reflects his own approach. He's a very patient man. I've watched him at many school board meetings, and you have to be patient to listen to hours of testimony. But I think he was actually listening to all the people who would come up from throughout the state, from L.A. and San Diego, 
And I think it really helped the board and him listening to that in making decisions and changing mid-course. We talked with a bunch of education leaders around the state to ask them about what they saw as Jerry Brown's greatest contribution to California education. And almost unanimously, they said the local control funding formula. And that really was Mike's kind of idea. I mean, it was based on the weighted student formula that it was actually tied to Title I. He co-authored this paper with Alan Burson and Goodwin Liu, which so they also get some credit for this. I mean, Mike won't really take credit for it because the governor then had to run with this and actually get it through the legislature, which was a hugely difficult task. But um, in terms of Mike's legacy, that has to be, I would say, at the top of the list. And then the other thing was that you will recall Mike was also a passionate advocate for the Common Core Standards at a time when it really wasn't that popular in many other states. And he went around the state making these speeches, arguing passionately for the Common Core. And uh, as a result, the Common Core was implemented in California and uh, with relatively little pushback. You know, when you talk to Mike, particularly about school finance reform, he'll, he'll be straightforward and say a lot of these concepts are around in the 70s. He just had the good fortune of longevity of being able to see it implemented in his 70s. And, of course, now the big question is, is this really going to do what it is supposed to do to really raise the achievement level of the kids who have been marginalized and have not succeeded at the level which they should? And uh, we'll just have to see how all that plays out. So that just about wraps it up for this week in California education. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalantari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. If you like what you hear, write us a review on iTunes. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>